What are you going to say? Yeah. Just reading this gave me cause to remember what a douchebag Sartre was. Yeah. Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey. My co-host, Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producer, talented musician and recording engineer, Adam Kamara, and me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. For our manifesto this week, we come to you with Hannah Arendt's A Special Supplement, Reflections on Violence, which first appeared in the New York Review of Books, the... Let's see, February 27th, 1969 issue. And this is the same Hannah Arendt who's most famous, I think, probably for three works. The Origins of Totalitarianism, Eichmann in Jerusalem, and actually the third is not a work, but a, a notion, a phrase that comes from Eichmann in Jerusalem, and that is the banality of evil, um, which uh, is often said to be widely misinterpreted, but is sometimes misinterpreted and is sometimes misdirected by mm-hmm. Arendt's defenders who don't want to <laughs> don't want to fully deal with Arendt's legacy. But more on that in a moment. And Amory, our our uh, manifesto writer of last week, uh, you know, last episode had a lot of problems with that. He takes he takes a few shots at the banality of evil. Uh, speaks well of him. Yeah. Okay. And we'll get to why in a moment, because I think the the Arendt uh, Arendt's a, a complicated figure, and there's no like easy judgment to render. Though there are many quick judgments yeah. rendered, uh, none of them. Just really a do lot justice. of really interesting ideas. I mean, this is absolutely and, true. Yeah, yeah. And who was she? All right. I don't want to say too much about her because I don't feel like anybody's tuning in here for potted biographies of these manifesto writers. And probably you've heard of her associated with those works I already mentioned, but she was uh, born in Germany then uh, in 1906 uh, to a Jewish family, uh, secular, I think what you might call upper middle class German Jews of the time. Uh, She later emigrated to America. Uh, She spent time in a few different places, but uh, finished out most of the rest of her life in America. And she was a... Yeah, this is really boring. We shouldn't do these. <laughs> yeah, right? It's uh, it's like it needs to either be a, a kind of biography unto itself. Are is we it, talking what's here? Inter- or yeah, do- yeah. Talking- I mean, what, what's interesting about her life? I mean, like, she was Heidegger's mistress. Um, yeah. Uh, All right. You want to know uh, something interesting, but this is not her life. This is the work. Let's get into the controversy. She was arrested by a German officer and, and ended up uh, she thought he had an honest face, so she uh, she trusted him more than the lawyer of the organization she was with, and he, he let her go when she escaped Germany. Um, I don't know. There's a couple interesting things in her biography. Yeah, there are plenty of interesting things, but, you know, it's for somebody else to get into. We don't have the time. Should we just get into violence? Let's do it. All right. But let's talk about the violence around the subject of a rent for a moment, because I think some of this is illuminating. The... Two, I think, probably greatest charges against the rent are, number one, uh, what you were describing 
a moment ago in terms of what I assume to be Amory's problem with the notion of the banality of evil. And now you could probably fairly say that the banality of evil really describes something more like the bureau- bureaucratization of evil mm-hmm. rather than, let's say, the Eichmann within us all kind of idea. Uh, that being said, this construction of the banality of evil didn't necessarily um, hew very strictly to the facts of the case in front of her. So yeah. the the one of the main criticisms against her is that she had a kind of selective interpretation of the trial of Eichmann uh, and a a moral philosophical framework into which she fit the events that she was viewing and that by doing so she skewed the actual nature of the truth about evil and Eichmann and banality. The second main charge against her probably related is that she was so influenced by a kind of German idealism um, that she couldn't separate it from her critique of the legacy of German romanticism and German idealism. So if you look at the origins of totalitarianism, for instance, um, the footnotes to the origins of totalitarianism or, or the index, rather, the works that she relies on, you know, she's relying on the work of German anti-Semites uh, and a kind of German romantic tradition and a German aristocratic anti-Semitic tradition to describe the history, to assay the history of German anti-Semitism, for instance, not relying on it in the sense that she's citing it in the lineage of German anti-Semitism, but that it's informing her conceptual framework for understanding yeah. it. So she is tainted in a way by the um, by the the object of her study or the subject of her study. This rather. is the charge. This is the charge. I think there's some truth to that. I think that uh, she was a, a brilliant writer um, and that it's not so easy to pigeonhole her. And even if you think that she was, um, you know, horribly, unforgivably uh, wrong about uh, subjects of great importance, you know, she was a a brilliant, wide-ranging writer. Um, and that's what I have to say about that. All right, so the Reflections on Violence is broken up into uh, six sections, I think, Um, five sections. And the the first one deals with really the ways in which um, she's writing this in the 1960s. Violence has had this new kind of political and philosophical cachet. Right, which disturbs her, and and, um, and this is the cachet from really '68 and student radicalism and third worldism. So it's written in '69. It's a year after the uh, my French pronunciations um, always make me cringe, but the Soissons Witards, the '68ers, and the kind of student revolutionary movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, in particular, she takes big, big shots at uh, Sartre. I don't know. <laughs> how's, how's my French pronunciation? I, you, you make me look better. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> so, um, uh, and his preface to uh, Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth. Yeah, right? it's funny. I had just, I wrote something a few months ago about anti-humanism where 
I quoted Sartre. Sartre. I quoted Sartre's introduction to Fanon's Wretched of the Earth because, uh, you know, he denounces humanism as a tool of imperialism. Actually, I, I have the same. It's funny. I was, I, was, I was looking into it for a speech that I ended up giving uh, Amin as well. I have this. <clears throat> this is from his, his introduction to Wretched of the Earth, which is this kind of uh, Franz Fanon was this kind of revolutionary, great anti-colonial, anti-colonial writer, very interested in kind of the 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 psychology of oppressed peoples and and how they must you know the ways in which liberation must happen, the way that you know kind of colonialism is is inextricably tr- tied with with violence and so must be decolonization. Anyway, so Sartre uh, writes. Uh, You who are so liberal, so humane, who take the love of culture to the point of affectation, you pretend to forget that you have colonies where massacres are committed in your name. And then a little later, first of all, we must confront an unexpected sight, the striptease of our humanism. Not a pretty sight in its nakedness, nothing but a dishonest ideology, an exquisite justification for plundering, its tokens of sympathy and affectations, alibis for our acts of aggression. The pacifists are a fine sight neither victims nor torturers. Come now, if you are not a victim when the government you voted for and the army your young brother served in commits genocide without hesitation or remorse, then you are undoubtedly a torturer, and if you choose to be a victim, risking one or two days in prison, you are simply trying to take the easy way out. It's such a gaudy, affected... You know, it's funny. Uh, and, a, and a subliminal shot at Camus, which is just the neither yeah, victims yeah, yeah. nor... Cause Camus yeah, yeah, right, written, right. Not, neither victims nor executioners, yeah. which is Camus' motto. Yeah. Camus, meanwhile, who participated who in the participated in the resistance. In a meaningful way and is one of the great humane philosophers of the 20th yeah. century. Here you go. Here it is. The, right? We were going to get into the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, it's Camus or Sartre. Yeah. Okay. Pick. You can't have both. Camus. It's Camus. The same way... All right, it's the American League or the National League. You have to pick one or the other. Those are football? Baseball. Uh, No, I'm just saying that life is divided into certain uh, binaries and that they're mutually exclusive and you have to pick one or the other. You can't have both. You know, it's Bukowski or Fante. Um, It's Camus or Sarta. You know, these these are meaningful distinctions. There's no, I mean, there's no question. And just, it's so galling for him to accuse Camus of standing on the sidelines when this is a guy, you know, it's funny. There's a, a, a biographer who asked um, Henry Noguer, I don't know how to pronounce it, the author of a five-volume uh, history of the French resistance, why he never mentioned Sartre because after the war, you know, Sartre was very um, – and, and he responded, because Sartre was never in the resistance. In 20 years of studying the resistance, I never encountered Sartre de Beauvoir. I mean, I think he was part of a group that sometimes met and talked, and that was about it. So, um, you know, meanwhile, Camus, you know, Camus tried to enlist when the war started, but he, he had, uh, for health reasons, he was turned down. Uh, and so then he joined a French resistance cell and was the editor-in-chief of its clandestine newspaper, Combat, which uh, yeah, c- is, combat is, is really good. Which it's, is incredible yeah. and which you can uh, find a, a lot of online. Also, it was published as a book. Combat was published but as I a book. I read in Iraq. And, ah. Yeah. It's funny, the stuff we read in Iraq. But uh, also his notebooks were mm-hmm. published, which cover those years and are um, worth reading, you know, worth skimming around in. All right, wait. We got on a tangent about just start being a... Let me say one thing about <laughs> what the Arendt is about. Yeah. Um, it is 
on violence, and you described the way in which it's a reaction, accurately described the way in which it's a reaction to the upheavals of 68 and this student radicalism and fanonism and this new kind of revolutionary fervor which sees, um, sees you know, nonviolent organizing as kind of uh, complacent, uh, bourgeois, ineffectual. So there's this fetishization of political violence. Um, but it, it's really about violence and power would be a better title in the sense that it would set up what well, this, the this is where she's about. working towards. Yes. Yes. So she starts she starts laying the, the sort of intellectual groundwork, which is this sort of fashionable um, glorification of violence at some point by, you know, people like like Sata who had been, you know, more more cowardly and then others, uh, you know, but also talking about people who really did engage in it. And, um, uh, and she has a few, like more than a few sort of shots at, at the kind of what she views as shoddy thinking. Um, and then it kind of moves into, okay, so what, what is violence and what is power? Uh, and what is their relationship? But before we get to that, let's start at the very beginning because mm -hmm. the, the first paragraph is about, the technology of violence and warfare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's totally interesting, interesting for a few reasons, right? Um, what she's saying, and I'll, I'll quote from it here, the technical development of implements of violence has now reached the point where no political goal could conceivably correspond to their destructive potential or justify their actual use in armed conflict. Hence, warfare since times immemorial, the final merciless arbiter in international disputes has lost much of its effectiveness and nearly all of its glamour. Now, what she's referring to, obviously, is nuclear weapons, yeah. right? And she's saying that if there was a direct one-for-one -one correlation between violence or the potential for violence as contained within the implements of violence and power, we would expect nuclear warfare, the, the possibility of nuclear warfare to have much more radically reorganized the planet than it actually did. Whoever had nuclear weapons should be able to impose their will anywhere at any time. They have the ultimate destructive weapon. So anything they say should be an automatic decree. They have, you know, catastrophic violence uh, at their fingertips at the push of a button. And yet this is not what happened. The violence ends up being paralyzing, self-limiting in that the violence um, can't be wielded um, after World War II, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It can't be wielded because of this uh, kind of mutually assured destruction stalemate. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. I will not go down in history as the greatest mass murder since Adolf Hitler. Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in the history books. And so it's therefore actually limiting on power in a sense. It shows that political power and, and violence um, are not directly correlated in this way. And there's a, a military strategist historian, a guy named Martin Van Creveld, who have mentioned in writing a few times. He's a Israeli military thinker. He's a very strange guy. 
um, has some what you could call retrograde views about uh, feminism and uh, he, he's a strange heterodox thinker, sort of a crank, also sometimes very brilliant. Um, and he wrote a, a probably his best known book is called The Transformation of War, I think is the title. Um, and it's this kind of anti-Klauswitzian book. And quickly what I'm getting at is the main – one of the main points he makes early on in this book is that nuclear weapons had almost no strategic impact on warfare because they couldn't be used. And for decades, the countries that had nuclear weapons searched and searched for ways to make them meaningful in war. And yet – what did they do? Did they win the war in Vietnam? Did they have any effect at all on the war? No, they had no effect at all on the war in Vietnam. And so they were, you know, cosmic planetary levels of violence contained, you know, in, in a warehouse. And yet their impact in terms of how much power they gave to the people wielding them to, to shape outcomes is much, much more constrained um, than is sometimes represented. Yeah, so <laughs> so then so then the question is, you know, you know, what like what is power, right? If it's if it if it's not synonymous with violence or if uh, sort of capacity for violence does not lead to, to power, what is power? And in the second section she goes through this, you know, Mao Zedong, power grows out of the barrel of a gun, uh, Bertrand de Juvenal, like different thinkers, and um, and John Stuart Mill, and this sort of association that a, a bunch of thinkers have, have, have made between power and the ability to command, right? Obedience. Right. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, if you're holding a gun on somebody, you command instant obedience. Um and then in the middle of it, that section, she says, however, there exists another tradition and another vocabulary, vocabulary no less old and time-honored than the one mentioned above. When the Athenian city-state called its constitution in isonomy, or the Romans spoke of the civitas as their form of government, they had in mind another con concept of power which did not rely upon the command-obedience relationship. Um, and later she brings in... Um, what page is that on with the... the uh... This is on the 10th page. Okay, so it's the 10th out of 25 pages, so it's a little less than halfway through where she introduces this other concept of political power that she traces to the Greek constitution or the... No, no, the... What is it? The isonomy, the... Um... The Athens, Athenian citizen state and the Roman civitas, right? Yes. So it's a little less than halfway through, but just to trace how she gets there... She starts off by decoupling power and violence. That's the first section. This is where sort of nuclear warfare comes yeah. in. And then after decoupling uh, power and violence, she starts to look at the idea of violence on the left. And what she's trying to do is figure out, you know, she's sort of working through power and violence all sort of circling around this idea of the ultimate effectiveness and ultimate uh, meaning of violence for the revolutionary left. Yeah. And, and, and for the sort of, for the revolutionary left, violence is, is, can be a 
part of a process of self-actualization, right? It, it, it can be um, a way in which you become human, right? Um, the So, yeah. Then she gets, you know, sort of winds her way back to, to Athens and, and she she likes to wind her way back to to the to the Greeks yeah. and Romans, um, uh, you know, in in, um, uh, in on revolutions. There's like a bit where she starts talking about just war theory, and she just goes to the Romans, just kind of like you know. You normally think of the whole tradition of uh, you know uh, Augustine and 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 uh, uh, but just sort of yeah skips back two thousand years. Okay. Um, and here she starts talking to this idea of obedience to laws instead of men. And she, what she says is what, what that phrase actually means is the support of the laws to which the citizenry has given its consent, right? Such support is never unquestioning, and as far as reliability is concerned, it cannot match the indeed unquestioning obedience that an act of violence can exact, the obedience every criminal can count on when he snatches my pocketbook with the help of a knife or robs a bank with the help of a gun. It is the support of the people that lends power to the institutions of a country, and this support is but the continuation of the consent which brought the laws into existence uh, into existence to begin with. And she quotes Madison saying, all governments rest on opinion, right? Um, uh, and, you know, and, and, and Madison is not just talking about democracies, right? Um, you know, I think of, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of interesting point that Francis Fukuyama makes in, uh, I think it's the origins of... of uh, political order. Politi- it's like, it's a... T- yeah, the origins of political order. The origins of political order, yeah. Um, or something very much like that. Which is really good, uh, that and the, and the sequel. And um, where... England had a system with um, where power was a little bit more diffuse. The, yeah. the, the monarchy was, in, in theory, more constrained, right. but actually was able to raise much more taxes than France, which was much, much larger um, because when you have a model that actually sort of inspires a degree of buy-in where there's a sense of rule of law is something that is actually meaningful, that constrains the, the, the yeah. monarch. People are willing to accept, um, uh, you have to be less coercive in extracting taxes. Uh, people are willing to accept a higher burden. Right. And so for, and so the state, even though England was much, much smaller, was, had, had kind of disproportionate power. Right. Um, it gets into this with the Chinese administrative state too. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, it's a very worthwhile book. And so, you know, uh, governments that rely entirely on violence, which she'll talk about later, is, is you know, they actually tend to be really weak. You know, North Korea is needs to have this sort of intense police state that is almost all of their effort is kind of internally motivated because without being able to actually, you know, yeah. uh, generate the support of the citizens, citizenry, you need constant suppression. And North and, Korea is an example of what she describes as even beyond the kind of excessive reliance on, on violence into the reign of terror, yeah. where even violence is insufficient and you need something beyond violence yeah. uh, to maintain itself. To, to pause for a moment there, part of this has to do, she kind of waffles on this point actually, but so we've established here, right, that power and violence have some connection, but that it's by no means a, di- by no means a direct connection. And she's talking 
uh, the Madison quote about the idea that ideas actually are important, beliefs are important, that they, yeah. they grant legitimacy, um, that they, they uh, show uh, an assent to a system that means that uh, you know, power is, is decentralized. Um, but you know, the other thing is that she talks about violence as a, a tool. A means. It's instrumental. It's yeah. instrumental. Now, in fact, she goes back and forth on this point a bit, and it's it's instrumental when she wants it to be instrumental, and it's uh, you know it's sort of an end in itself at at other moments. But um, part of what she's saying is that the 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 reliance, the over reliance, the fetishization of violence by the new left is in part mistaking a means for an end and she's constantly trying to show how like uh, these thinkers who think they're in a Marxian tradition, Sartre among them are actually have little to do with the kind of Marxist understanding of the function of violence in driving historical progress and she's interested in figuring out how the left arrived at this point Mm -hmm. Um, and it's interesting given where we're at now with the, the sort of new revitalized left in America and elsewhere trying to figure out what it believes and its own relationship to violence. There's a useful quote here, I think, uh, that gets at this, uh, this dynamic. She says, there still remains the question of why so many of these new preachers of violence have remained unaware of their decisive disagreement with the teachings of Karl Marx, or to put it another way, why they cling with such stubborn tenacity to concepts which are not only refuted by actual events, but are clearly inconsistent with their own politics. For although the one positive political slogan the new movement has put forth, the claim for participatory democracy, which has echoed around the globe and which constitutes the most significant common denominator of the rebellions in the East and West, derives from the best in the revolutionary tradition, the council system, the always defeated but only authentic outgrowth of all revolutions since the 18th century. It cannot be found in, nor does it agree, either in word or in substance, with the teachings of Marx and Lenin, both of whom aimed at a society in which the need for public action and participation in public affairs would have withered away along with the state itself. Um, That is only two sentences, if you can believe it, a a long (laughs) paragraph composed of two sentences, but I think gets at the uh, the point I was making a moment ago. Yeah, well, for, in, in Marx, kind of, there is no need for politics after, you know, you've achieved um, but the also communist Marx. revolution. And, 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 and there's a way in which, you know, like she, she mentions how, you know, Sartre thinks that, uh, you know, in, in response to the, you know, the violence of the colonial um, forces, the, uh, you know, resistance to colonial forces, all tribal conflicts diminish and tend to disappear, you know, and, um, you know, would be one of those ahistorical, uh, you know, things that you could, you could only believe if you had no interest in, in history. There's, yeah. uh, she, she takes a, a bunch of shots like that, that I think are quite justified, right? Um, there's this sort of, uh, which, which you see in Marx in a different way, like 
such a such a fascination with the, the the kind of process of moving towards this end point that the assumption is that it, it's it's going to dissolve all the problems rather than than you know for her point you know for her uh, politics is always going to be an a, a, a central aspect of of you know the human condition right she's she's a book about about that where she sort of divides you know man man's active life into you know, like labor and work and, and, and political action, you know, political action where you're, you know, you make speeches, take, take, uh, uh, try and, you know, persuade and convince other members of, of your, yeah. you know, political, you know, civic body. And that that is a kind of, mm, you know, whenever you take a political action, you can never know the outcome, right? Because anytime you influence the civic body, right, right, there's, Counter decision, you know, counter reactions, and, and yeah. just a kind of chain of events that never ends, um, you know, within a, a sort of fluid, constantly moving forward into the future, you know, group of other civic actors, and you know, for her, imagining that 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 demand for recognition and identity formation within the civic sphere and action that men can take, that any of the problems that are inherent to that are going to be solved by any kind of instrumental means is is a historical insanity. Yeah, so she's questioning both the Marxian uh, linear history, um, you know, teleological history. She's saying both that uh, this, this Marxian idea of how history works is not... Uh, maybe not correct, but also not actually present in the people who think that they're heirs of Marx. So Marx doesn't think that violence is what drives history. Right? Yeah. This is not the, you know, the violence, the, the proletarian revolution comes at the very end. It's a, a kind of instrumental means of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, forming the worker state that will then wither away, but it's by no means the driving force of history. Um, so she's she's looking at it from that angle, and and, and, this and is as Arendt points out, some revolutions need not even really be violent right. because once political power is withered away, um, the the simple action of people standing up, and she gives historical examples, can just sort of show the fragility and weakness of the state, and it kind of immediately collapses. She points to the French student uh, revolt yeah. in '68 actually as you know as this symbolic protest. There was some violence, but very low level by any objective measure. Um, and it, it sort of exposes the the fragility of the state. But she's saying, and I think uh, she's right about this and was very prescient in making this point, actually. She's saying, where does this come from? And she looks at George Sorrell um, and uh, Sorrell, who had his own uh, well-known writings on violence and who's a kind of syncretic figure of both the left and the right, in a sense, um, claimed by certain left-wing traditions and right-wing traditions, best known, I suppose, for the universal strike, but a proponent of a kind of blood myth. Um, and she says this is perhaps a, the, the more, uh, the, mo the greater influence on this current idea of revolutionary violence. It's a, a Sorelian uh, legacy. Yeah. And so, you know, then in her her bit on on revolution, I said it it it, it doesn't tie really to any of these thinkers, and, and she brings up these examples where it doesn't. So she says, look, power is the essence of all government, 
violence is not, right? And, and this is another one of those places where she argues that violence is by its na nature instrumental, right? Like it, it needs guidance and justification. Um, and she says, power needs no justification. It's inherent in the very existence of political communities. What it does need, however, is legitimacy. And she says, power springs up whenever people get together and act in concert but it derives its legitimacy from the initial getting together rather than from any action that then may follow. And then she says, violence needs justification and it can be justifiable, but its justification lo loses in plausibility the farther away its intended end recedes into the future. Yeah, I, I think this gets a bit ridiculous um, and very neat and, uh, you know, that the, the power adheres in the moment of getting together and, mm -hmm. and it, you know, it goes away. No, no, these are more dynamic processes. The power and the violence are actually more closely related than this suggests. She wants to, to disentangle them in a way that makes of them kind of elemental antagonists or, or, or primary elements. She wants them to be utterly discrete primary elements, uh, you know, that are, that are fundamental compositional, right? Like this, uh, this is what the world is made of power on the one hand, oil and water, power and violence, you know, uh, fire and water. Well, I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, she argues that they're opposites. Uh, she says yeah. directly later in the, in the essay that they, uh, that they are in fact opposing, you know, that you right, can have, right. you can have, um, you know, you can have violence and power together, but you can't grow power out of violence. Yeah, but if the idea is that power represents the willing assent mm -hmm. of the uh, the uh, ruled to the rules, or the the assent of the uh, you know the governed to the governance, I forget what's the the phrase she uses when she says like this is the great the one I just read in that yeah. phrase with Marx. Whatever that phrase is that she uses, where she's describing essentially how the one great legacy of all these left-wing movements is uh, really the same. It's participatory democracy, right. right? If power is the participation, what she's neglecting is the way in which violence can, when it's effective, replenish the participation. So the idea that violence is what comes in when the participation wanes um, is not necessarily true. And also misunderstands the even the instrumental nature of violence because violence that's understood to be just or noble can enhance the participatory oh, yeah. nature, and so that uh, you know they are they are m much more dynamically related, I think, than this kind of antithetical relationship she's setting up suggests. You, you, you're talking about sort of violence directed outward or or it's sort of like universally acknowledged sort of just targets within a society? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which she touches on a bit, but uh, but yeah, I, I think that that's neglected. And I think the idea that the, the power adheres only in that early formation uh, misses the way that, you know, there are these cycles of assent to an idea, maybe the decay of that idea, maybe then a, a, a revitalization that occurs where there's a renewed belief driven both by events and mm -hmm. perhaps a, a new idea that's born, a new way of believing. Well, I mean, also there's, there's so many uh, circumstances where belief in the legitimacy of power is dependent upon, you know, 
the people giving that that assent of the governed to to see their leaders enacting violence, right? Like I, I, was, I was talking to a, um, uh, a special forces guy, and one of the problems that he was dealing with in, in 2010 was he had these sheikhs who had been in the insurgency who were sort of willing to work uh, with him, uh, but lower down, the kind of tribesmen felt that legitimacy was conferred by striking a blow against the Americans, or at least that was one way that you could sort of burnish your legitimacy. And so one of the things that uh, the sheikhs would do was sort of, they would work with the Americans, but also turn a blind eye towards, you know, tribesmen launching mortars or other kind of sort of attacks with like a low probability of creating casualties or creating too many sort of <laughs> uh, issues that were, uh, you know, too large. And, and, and so, you know, th- there's a way in which these things get, get woven together um, in a way that is, I, I you know, I, I agree. Sometimes it's a little bit too neat in here. Yeah. Though I think, I think the, the, the basic, the basic understanding of the way that, I mean, violence against an individual or against a population cannot, you cannot coerce you can't necessarily coerce power, right? Like you need some sort of uh, some sort of buy-in. Uh, uh, no, yeah, you you need some buy-in, but yeah. you can coerce. Uh, you can coerce buy-in is one of the right. lessons of the twentieth century. In fact, that you know Camus understands very well. It's a fragile buy-in. Maybe it's a a kind of um, feral buy-in where you know it's like. You believe in a system that, you know, is like a, a snitching police state system and, and you believe in it because you're afraid if you don't believe in it, somebody's right. going to tell the cops that you don't believe in it. But um, but that may be uh, sort of radioactive and, and decaying that sort of buy-in. Like it, it might not be sustainable, but it exists in bursts. And on a lower level – on a less uh, totalitarian, a less ruthless level, there are uh, ways of coercing buy-in. I, I think for that, for for this purpose of um, by sh- by using violence to show the ability to impose order in an otherwise lawless space. Let's say so the right. so the violence in that case, um, you know, it's a, a crude example: the American West, right, a, a frontier town. The violence imposed in an American frontier town, which is absolutely coercive in that it's taming the anarchic behavior of the people in this uh, western frontier town, induces buy-in in that people who desire an orderly society in which to live, an orderly community in which to live, respond to that violence with an assent to the power behind the violence because they like the order it produces. They desire the order it produces. Does that make sense? Yeah. But let me read this one line because I think this sums up what she's saying that we're responding to. She writes, to sum up, politically speaking, it is not enough to say that power and violence are not the same. Power and violence are opposites. Where the one rules absolutely, the other is absent. Violence appears where power is in jeopardy, but left to its own course, its end is the disappearance of power. This implies that it is not correct to say that the opposite of violence is nonviolence. 
to speak of nonviolent power is actually redundant. Eh, you know. Okay. Sure. And also, by the way, how, if violence is a, a, a means, how can a means and an end be opposites? Yeah. If power is an end and violence is a means, or maybe she's not saying power is an end, actually. She says peace is an end in itself. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's also, around there is also when she gets to the, the terror state, right? Which is, um, and one interesting thing that she says about that, a state that is so wholly reliant on violence that it depends on a sort of terrorized population um, is that it, she says, it depends almost entirely on the degree of social atomization, the disappearance of every kind of organized opposition which must be achieved before the full force of terror can be let loose. Um, And I think, I mean, I think that's, that's, Interesting, right? That uh, and and kind of goes along with with some of the other thinkers um, that we've seen before, right? I mean, Amory talked about the, the the way in which one of the functions of of one of the sort of psychological things that was impressed upon him as a, as a victim of the of Nazism was extreme loneliness, yeah. right? Um, and you know, McIntyre talking about how a you know that kind of collective sense of oneself being essential to, um, you know, to human beings, uh, understanding what it is that they're, the good that they're searching for. Um, whereas, you know, that kind of thing, because it is, because it fundamentally can't be controlled in any organized way coercively, it can be influenced by, by violence. If you're going to rely entirely on coercion, on violent coercion to control a state, you need to break down those kind of social bonds, except for those that are not, you know, operating within very strict parameters. Hmm. Yeah. Word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So where, where does she go with this, right? She's, she's laying out uh, what is violence? What is power? What is re- the relationship between the two of them? How do they relate to theories of history and yeah. historical progress and social social arrangements within society? And, and what she comes to at a certain point is this idea. Uh, she says, nothing I think is more dangerous theoretically than this tradition of organic thought in political matters in which power and violence are interpreted in biological terms. And so what she's saying here is that the conflation of the order of nature in which, uh, you know, in, in organic life, uh, destruction, uh, decline is inevitable um, and in which, uh, you know, everything either shrinks or dies when applied to the realm of human affairs, when applied to politics creates an imperative of violence, makes right, a well, violence it's a, it's a virtue. Social Darwinism, right? Social Darwinism, um, precisely. But she's talking here about a kind of social Darwinism adopted by the left. Uh, she's talking here not about the idea that, uh, you know, the kind of classic, and of course, social Darwinism started on the left before the right took it, but now, now we're back to the social Darwinism of the left. So, you know, we associate social Darwinism mostly, I think, when people hear about it, they think of a, you know, kind of proto fascist 
survival of the fittest argument. But in fact, there's a progressive tradition of eugenics that, that precedes that and of uh, Darwinian social theory that precedes that. But this is the, the aftermath of that in which it's not a self-consciously Darwinian ethic, right? It is a, an adoption of the ethos of violence, of the value of violence as a uh, kind of metaphorical uh, good, right? Not, not as a Darwinian good, not as this is the natural mechanism that, uh, that governs all things. You know, Sartre, Sartre was not saying violence is nature's good, that, that uh, we, are, we are only serving what is, what is natural. And, and uh, you know, Sartre was saying something different. He's saying that violence is uh, you know, the, the means by which to undo the corruption and hypocrisy of the West and, and violence is the tool that the, the weak and the oppressed can use against the oppressor and that it's to, to uh, castigate them for that, to repress that violence is to do the bidding of the oppressor. And Arendt is saying that a revolution that begins that way leads to terror and that a revolution that begins that way begins in error because it accepts this biological theory of political goods and that the biological theory you know, the organic theory, she says, nothing I think is more dangerous theoretically than this. Yeah. Um, which then leads her to try and work out her own sense of where violence comes from, how to situate it within human beings, and also the ways in which, you know, one of the challenges that, that somebody like Fanon puts out is is, you know, Violence as uh, the just reaction and kind of uh, necessity of an oppressed people in a state that is um, in, in a kind of political condition where they have violence being enacted upon them, where the sort of steady state of colonialism uh, and the maintenance of a colonial regime implies violence, right? Um, yeah. And that, you know, there's a way in which if you sort of, uh, if you seek to deny legitimate rage and the violence that can come from that, are you, is that not, um, not just sort of asking people to passively accept their fate, but is it not dehumanizing? Mm. Um because that is, you know, yeah, you know, that is how a, a fully realized human being would respond, right? Um, and so she talks about in the fifth section rage, um, and she says, you know, that violence often springs from rage is a commonplace. And rage can indeed be irrational and pathological, but so can every other human effect. Um, and uh, rage is by no means an automatic reaction to misery and suffering as such, but what it is and what it frequently is, is a response to is when our sense of justice is offended, right? And then um, she, she says that rage and violence 
sometimes and not always go go with it um, uh, are, are part of the natural human emotions, and to cure man of them would mean nothing less than to dehumanize or emasculate him. But she caveats that by saying that rage and violence can turn irrational when they're directed not um, when they're directed against substitutes, right? Yeah. Or and then she also brings up the the, the question of kind of collective guilt and collective innocence. I think she's saying when they're when they're turned against substitutes, and also when they're sort of deliberative instead of reactive, right? Yeah. Like the the instance she gives for justified rage, you know, she points to Billy Budd yeah. striking dead the man who's falsely accused him, and it's this sort of immediate, uh, you know, it's supposed to be this kind of, um, I don't know what it's supposed to be, actually. Let me think a little bit more about this. But the sense that I had from Arendt, uh, now I'm, I'm thinking about it a little harder when I'm recalling Billy Butt, but the sense that I had from the Arendt was that she was saying that rage as a natural response is justifiable and the violence produced of rage that's a natural response to a kind of, you know, immediate indignity or injustice is justifiable, but that when that reactive, instinctual thing is bottled or is elevated to become a political principle, that's when it becomes poisonous and that's when this organic system is is dangerously imposed on the human and the political. And that's when it's sort of further separated from the kind of immediate situation that right. that that that, uh, that sparked it. You know who uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien is? Have you read any of his no. stuff? Conor Cruz O'Brien uh, was a Irish liberal writer, uh, very very interesting, uh, brilliant writer. I think he was a half Protestant, half Catholic. He had a, um, heterodox views. He used that word a lot. Um, but he was an opponent of many forms of political violence in Ireland, though not all. And Arendt quotes him here in this piece, I think saying that, basically saying sometimes violence is necessary to assert the moderate position, that, you know, mm-hmm. you can't achieve the moderate stance uh, by any means other than violence. I thought it was interesting that she'd quote him, though. I sort of think of Arendt and O'Brien as being from antagonistic political tendencies. Uh, I was just sort of surprised to see him in it. And then from a sense of injustice, she moves to hypocrisy. That's right. Which, you know, she says... um, uh, when, you know, when she talks about some of the sort of writers like Sorel and Fanon, who glorified violence for violence's sake, they were motivated by a much deeper hatred for bourgeois society and were led to a much more radical break with its moral standards than the conventional left, which was chiefly inspired by compassion and a burning desire for justice. To tear the mask of hypocrisy from the face of the enemy, to unmask him, his devious machinations and manipulations that permit him to rule without using violent means, that is, to provoke action even at the risk of annihilation so that the truth may come out, these are still among the strongest motives in today's violence on the campuses and in the streets. And this violence, again, is not irrational. Yeah. We should wrap this up, but yeah. hold on. Let me find, because uh, you you just hit that, and um, okay. Here, here we go. I, I want to say, following up on this enunciation of violence and uh, the streets and um, yada, yada, all that stuff you just said, blah, blah, blah. Let me read this to all the 
allies out there. To all the good allies. She writes, Where all are guilty, however, no one is. Confessions of collective guilt are always the best possible safeguard against the discovery of the actual culprits. So if you're um, like one of these men who's denouncing men as a way of signaling that you're not a bad man, that you're a good man, perhaps this is directed at you. Um, Phil looks very uncomfortable. (laughs) 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 All right, I'm going to keep going. You can cut this out later if you want. I didn't denounce men. That's right. Um, To continue with the quote. Do you remember when there was a – on – Sixth Avenue, somebody took out a uh, took out an ad after the election of Donald Trump, uh, and it was like um, one of the at a bus stop, and it was yeah. the full kind of thing of uh, like a poster, mm. um, and the ad was just a, a white, and then the words "We're sorry, white people." Yeah, I mean, so the incredible thing about this, right, is that it's universally viewed with contempt and derision. So if you take the figure of the male feminist, and by male feminist, I don't mean uh, a man who, you know, has egalitarian views about women's rights and and, uh, women's abilities. In the world, I mean the uh, obsequious um, male feminist who... Uh, trades in slogans and, uh, you know, like cheap rhetorical male bashing kind of social signaling stuff. If you take that figure, what's interesting about the prevalence of that figure is that here is a type of character proliferating while every single sign shows that nobody respects it, right? So, There has to be some sort of reward. Otherwise, why would people do it or a perceived reward? And yet, everywhere you turn, uh, male feminists treat other male feminists with contempt and derision because they say they're phonies and hypocrites. I don't know what you're talking about. um, Okay, let me explain it to you. If you look at the sort of figure of the the woke male feminist, Mm -hmm. right, the figure is a Jezebel article uh, a few weeks ago about a – writer for Mike.com. Yeah, yeah, I know about this. Okay. Okay, but here you're talking about somebody who is accused of misconduct, Well, I'm talking about a – yes, but I'm talking about a specific passage Mm -hmm. in that piece in which in – by way of providing context about uh, who he was as a journalist, he was described as somebody who sort of traded on – traded on the – uh, association with the marginalized, which mm-hmm. was, and the, much of the response to the piece, uh, or a certain kind of response to the piece, focused on the fact that this guy posed as a male feminist and was, in fact, uh, you know, violating this in the worst possible way because he was um, abusing and preying on women while mm-hmm. pretending to be a male feminist. But what I find is that it's not just the hypocrisy that people respond to with revulsion and contempt. They respond to the actual figure of the male feminist with revulsion and contempt, and that includes the way it's framed in the Jezebel article, which doesn't just attack him for being a hypocrite. It attacks him for being a journalist who associates with, you know, who trades on the marginalized, which is to say that his allyship was from its origins, from the very beginning, a kind of counterfeit virtue 
Yeah. Right. So on the one hand, this is a kind of uh, an identity, a position that people are encouraged to take. It's a good thing. You should be an ally. You should be a male feminist. On the other hand, nobody trusts it. Nobody trusts it. So because they think it's performative. The people who demand this think it's performative. Like in, in other words, the people who posit it as a virtue think it's performative. Other male feminists – Maybe with some awareness that uh, – I, So I don't think this is universal. I think – because every once in a while I'll see somebody point to something that someone has done and say this is how you be an ally, right? Um, I think that it depends – I mean the case, the case that you're, you're bringing up is specifically somebody who was accused of like sexual harassment and misconduct. But I'm not bringing up – I mean the, like we, this, this might be – I mean I, I do agree that a sort of performative, um, you know – Solidarity yes. is a figure, can be a figure of contempt. I mean, even Sartre, who's performing it, has a kind of contempt for it in the introduction. Uh, I remember there was a there was an event of kind of uh, at the Brooklyn Book Festival where mm. there was a there was a you know white American moderator who was moderating a panel of of you know authors from a variety of different countries, right? And speaking with, I think it was a Sri Lankan author. And he made this point that you probably heard before, where he's like, oh, you know, and of course, she was kind of exp- ext- explaining the kind of intric- intricacies of, of the politics there. And he says, oh, of course, you know, it's difficult because, you know, we Americans are so ignorant. Um, and she said, well, I mean, you know, like, most people don't interest themselves in, like, the, the politics, you know. And she says, you know, the average right. Sri Lankan probably doesn't understand, like, the Iowa straw poll, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just kind of her way of saying, like, you expect every American to be versed in every single right, country. Right. It's kind of, you know, but he clearly misheard what she was saying, which was kind of sort of diffusing the thing. And he seemed to have thought that she, he, she thought he was saying that Sri Lankans were yeah, ignorant. Right, right, right. And so he goes, no, no, I'm calling myself ignorant. I'm not yeah, talking right, about right, Sri right, I'm right. calling myself ignorant. Yeah, right, right. And, and it was just hilarious. This guy, you know, who's up here, it clearly a very knowledgeable person, doing this thing it's like no 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 i wasn't you know okay but this is what i'm saying yeah all right and and, you know i don't want to weigh in on the culture wars all the time because i find it exhausting uh but i also you know i I don't want to delude myself or uh or, or pull punches as it were so you know let's just let's acknowledge that a identity founded in self abasement is pathetic yeah. and is going to be viewed as pathetic in a kind of instinctual way and that uh, this kind of performative self-abasement is at one and the same time encouraged and then despised because it's fundamentally untrustworthy. That's not to say that you know all forms of penance or or, right. or or accepting responsibility. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, and here, let's remember, I'm talking about what Arendt is talking about, and Arendt is talking about a particular kind of late '60s student radicalism that is still very much alive today. That was once called the New Left. Now you could call it whatever uh, social justice, what have you, hyper-liberalism to distinguish it from sort of the Marxian left, hyper-liberalism is I think probably a more accurate way of thinking of it, uh, though they've they've bled together 
as Arendt points out here, but that that kind of character, right? Again, what's interesting about it to me is that people both feel the need to act this way and yet feel the need to denounce people who act this way. Uh, It's a trap. It's a trap. I pointed out the thing with the, the Smith character leaving aside the, you know, what he's accused of because of the way that his identity as a journalist was framed, which yep. I think is revealing in that um, I think that it's not just in light of what he was accused of that that identity is viewed with suspicion. I think, you know, and again, we're talking about a particular type of radicalism that Arendt brings up. And I think that if you're going to trade in the kind of, you know, all men are trash, uh, uh, this sort of like Dworkinite, McKinnonite, uh, radical feminist ideology that's been translated into a contemporary context. If you're going to – hold on. If if you're you're a man who has tweeted hashtag cancel men, it it creates a certain degree of suspicion. Uh, Obviously, it creates a certain degree of suspicion. And the people who are tweeting hashtag cancel men are denouncing other men who tweet hashtag cancel men. And nobody – this is what I'm saying. Nobody actually respects somebody – who performs this kind of groveling, uh, self-denouncing role? It's a, it's a bizarre phenomenon. But that's not even the final point. The final point is, it's apolitical. You yeah. know, it's it's a personality gesture. It's a social gesture. And this is what I'm getting at with the Arendt quote. All right, Arendt says, "We're all are guilty. However, no one is." Confessions of collective guilt are always the best possible safeguard against the discovery of the actual culprits. In this particular instance, it is, in addition, a dangerous and obfuscating escalation of racism into some higher, less tangible regions. The real rift between black and white is not healed when it is being translated into an even less reconcilable conflict between collective innocence and collective guilt. It is racism in disguise and it serves quite effectively to give the very real grievances and rational emotions of the Negro population an outlet into irrationality and escape from reality. Um, and you know, she leads into Robespierre in the next paragraph. But if you listen to the first half of that in particular, I think it's uh, – the whole thing is highly relevant. Yeah, I mean – I, I think it's it's tricky because I think as we've been sort of chewing our way through, the, especially the past couple of manifestos, I think a, cl- a sense of collective responsibility is clearly in order, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and This is the opposite of responsibility. Right. It, it is precisely the opposite of responsibility. It is these broad categorical denunciations are – exactly how you evade responsibility you displace all responsibility even if you know even if you're saying hey we're sorry as if your sorrow as if your personal guilt amounted to anything at all um no it's uh it's a kind of 
a theater of politics, a theater of morality, but it's... And, 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 and then she moves back into the notion of violence and the idea that, like, this sort of um, theater with its glorification of violence is going to inspire the kind of solidarity that you have on the battlefield, right? right. But right. That, that, that battlefield solidarity is actually very, is very fragile for yes. forming, you know, kind of broader political views. I actually, I actually kind of wrote about this in the yeah. piece I did for The Atlantic. And so um, it's kind of this, this mirage of collective action that is similar to power that's not going to happen. And then she sort of ends with this notion of the greater bureaucratization of public life, right, yeah. uh, where it becomes increasingly more difficult to find the actual culprits, right? So in the first one, there's this sort of performance of, of, of collective innocence and guilt that, that obscures culprits. The other thing that she says is the kind of bureaucratization of public life, and I think corporatization of public life is another one, where in a fully developed bureaucracy, she says, there is nobody left with whom one could argue, to whom one could prevent present grievances on whom pressures of power could be exerted, right? That sort of the increasing complexity and size of the systems make it even more difficult to locate an individual's, you know, when we talk about sort of, you know, racist structures or structures that sort of systematically harm particular populations, you know, it's not, you can't be Billy Budd in a natural and spontaneous gesture, striking dead the man who bore false witness against That's you. That's right. Right? That's and right. so it, it is this form of government where you have these diffuse structures where responsibility is diffuse, and that's one of the, you know, and, and, and so it, it, in her telling, this deprives people of political freedom and also the ability to address, you know, to, to, to address these kind of concerns, which I think sort of speaks to... In, in, in her telling, the appeal of these notions of collective yeah. collective guilt and right. collective innocence because, you know, how do you deal with a diff- diffuse bureaucratized structure that nevertheless perpetuates very real and measurable injustice? Same again, please. What's that? Press harder this time. Good. Oh, this is all about. That is your receipt for your husband. Thank you. And this is my receipt for your receipt. Yeah. Yeah. A and good point. she sort of ends it, you know, suggesting this will continue to be a problem in the future, which I think uh, it obviously is. So, she was we- a, yeah, no, no, I just, that, that was bold of her to predict that violence and power. <laughs> would, uh, and, you know, she was right. So it paid off. That, yeah. that gamble paid off. Uh, yeah. Should we move on to the Miller? All right. Tell me about the Miller. So, um, Frank Miller's a comic book artist uh, and kind of did these really gritty uh, noir, you know, comic noir, noir yeah. you know, I mean, the, his pulp noir, pulp noir. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sin City, you know, became famous for, uh, is that more famous than the dark Knight? So dark Knight, dark Knight was, I think the big one. And then when the movie came out, I think Sin City became famous, but Sin City was, I think the most visually striking thing that he did. Yeah. So he was the, the writer. Also. Yeah. He was an anchor in addition, yeah. but he wrote, uh, the original Sin City comic. He wrote the Dark Knight comics. Daredevil. So that that to me, I'll say off the bat, um, comics have gotten weird in the past twenty years. Uh, both in the way that you know every movie is now a comic movie is kind of made me feel weird about them. Uh, I finally watched Black Panther. 
I don't want to watch any of these movies. I, oh, I enjoyed it. I saw Black Panther. It was, you know, it was fine. Um, it was entertaining. You know, it yeah. just wasn't great. It was, it was probably a little too long, but entertaining. Pretty good. Uh, but just in general, the comic book genre of movies um, sort of bores me and I, I feel is um, kind of weird and played out. Um, but at one time in my life, I, I liked comic books a lot. I read a bunch of them. And Frank Miller, the best stuff he did was the origins of Daredevil and the Electra Saga. The Electra Saga, which is Daredevil's sort of assassin love interest, I guess would be the way to put yeah. this, uh, really, I think, was incredible. And his Daredevil origin story in Hell's Kitchen was really good. But this is... Probably this insensitive or what made his name, this yeah. kind of neo-noir pulp Batman character he created. And it's this very like, you know, he also gets criticized a lot because of his politics, especially sort of later. He did this um, like – You're going to bring up the Occupy thing? A Holy Terror, the like uh, anti-Muslim cartoon. Oh, oh, I didn't even read that. I heard Yeah. That. I think even he like uh, um, uh, sort of – made apologies for it. He did do like an Occupy Wall Street tirade. Yes, which is uh, incredible. He described Occupy as a pack of louts, thieves, and rapists. Wake up, pond scum. America's at war against a ruthless enemy. Maybe between bouts of self-pity and all the other tasty tidbits of narcissism you've been served up in your sheltered, comfy, comfy little worlds, you've heard terms like Al-Qaeda and Islamicism. Which, um, you know. So here's the incredible thing, right? This sort of ruthless uh, vigilante character that uh, he seems to be embodying in this letter to Occupy Wall Street about right. how they're weak, degenerate, uh, like rich kids' sons, and um, there's a real, you know, there's a tough world out there. Reminds me of the Rorschach character yeah. in Watchmen by the vastly more talented <laughs> Alan Moore. Yeah. Um, and don't get me wrong, I loved the Frank Miller stuff when I was younger, but Watchmen is actually uh, incredible. It's and, great, yeah. Uh, and the movie with the painfully long sex scene set to um, uh, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah does not do <laughs> the comic book justice. I liked the opening sequence of that movie, actually. And that director also did 300, yeah. which Miller wrote. Right. Or no, wrote the comic it was based on. Um, but Miller is a sort of comic book. He's a comic book character, not from a comic he wrote. Uh, he's the deranged villain from a more talented comic book writer's comic. Yeah, is what I'm getting <laughs> that's at. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But his relationship to violence is that it's good. Uh, he's pro violence. Yeah. Definitely has a less complicated relationship right. than uh, Arendt has. So, the weird thing about Occupy, though, so so th this book takes place in this like uh, Dark Knight Return takes place in this like totally dysfunctional world, like, all the elites are worthless, right? Um, you know, the, 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 the mayor only does things, yeah. like, basically, he's the PR guy Gotham for the mayor, yeah. you know, it tells the mayor whatever he's going to do, uh, people are, you know, beset by criminals and, and you know, street gangs, um, and only, you know, not just only Batman, but, like, Batman's going to come in and inspire people and the people are going to rise up in this anarchic fashion and take their city back, right? Yeah. Against these parasitic, 
um, elites. Um, and there's a weird way in which you could see how, like, Occupy theoretically should should jive with some of the things that you see in, um, you know, The Dark Knight Returns. I guess the problem is that Occupy wasn't, you know, cutting people's heads off. The problem is that Occupy didn't seek to fix Gotham through a kind of primitive strength yeah. and cruelty, uh, but righteous cruelty, or unsparingness, let's say, rather yeah. than cruelty, a, a primitive uh, Spartan yeah. stoicism and violence, right? You know, that's what Miller wants. Occupy is hippies in the street, but you're right. You know, yeah. there's this weird way in which the complaints of Occupy mirror some of yeah. Miller's complaints. Occupy is such a strange phenomenon in that it contains a lot that's interesting and, and good, I think, and healthy, you know, uh, some of the economic populism, I think, was much needed in this country. Um, but it's sort of bizarrely understudied, yeah. especially the way in which it contained both right and left-wing elements. You know, I have met, uh, writing about the alt-right as a journalist, I can't tell you how many people I've run into in the alt-right who started off through Occupy. Oh, that's interesting. got into politics through Occupy because it was this fluid, uh, popular, anti-elite yeah. movement. And, and you can see... Um, and adbusters who sort of got the thing going, you know, are has like bizarro politics. Um, but anyway, okay. So he was he's pro violence and anti occupy. So we'll give a quick rundown. Yeah. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Batman's been retired. He's old, right? He's, uh, yeah, an old or not guy. old, but like he's in his fifties, yeah. right? He's he's yeah, old yeah. for somebody who is, is going to. He's been retired for a while. And God everything's gone to hell. Everything's gone to hell. And superheroes aren't supposed to be in the open anymore, right? Um, and, uh, so the, like, squishy liberal psychologists release, uh, Two-Face, right? Because they, they've, they've cured him, and they say that, uh, you know, uh, he's, uh, it was just a psychological misfunction. That's right. He had a bad childhood. And it's actually Batman's response because sort of like repressive violence against criminals is actually what is responsible for criminal violence. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, uh, Batman is is um, uh, or you know Bruce Wayne is living his life. He's trying not to get involved. He's in a this. rich playboy yeah. in uh, a mansion, but he's dissatisfied. And there's like this discussion that he has with Commissioner Gordon, where Commissioner Gordon is like, "Oh, you need a woman," and and you know his interior monologue is the creature riles and you know the creature inside him, the creature rises and snarls and tells me what I need, right? Um, and it's just what Man, I used to love that stuff so much. It's so hard for me to go back and reread this now. God. I mean, it's like I went back and reread Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, like, it depends on the McCarthy. Some of the McCarthy totally. Hands I mean, up. he's a beautiful writer. He's a beautiful. Sometimes writer. he's a beautiful writer. Sometimes I think to myself, the sun rose over the sky like a giant red phallus. Did you need or or did you need the eleventh antique? Yeah, uh, you know. Yeah. So sort of, I, it's biblical. I understand. Right. I, 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 you fully conveyed the biblicalness of this. Yeah. But when he's good, also his plots are good. You know, yeah. so even when the lines are bad, the stories are good. 
Yeah, but the the relationship to violence. Yeah. Frequently throws me in 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 McCarthy, and definitely in Frank Miller. Reading this as a you know thirty five year old is is a different experience. So you know they release Harvey Dent. Of course, he immediately goes back into crime. Batman comes back into crime, deals with Harvey Dent. Meanwhile, there's like these street gangs called the Mutants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, Batman has to like fight their leader. And one of the things that's interesting is there's this focus on Batman's physicality. Mm. Like he's old. You you sort of feel the the injury to yeah, his body. Yeah, yeah. It's it's I mean like it's a really well done comic and the violence is done in a much much more interesting way than most other comics. Yeah, because there's no character in it if he's a young, super fit guy, right? Yeah. The whole idea there, it has to be broken down. It, he's The city has deteriorated. He's deteriorated right. in some way. And what is it that's going to rejuvenate both of them? Yeah. Violence. Right. You need some of that good, old-fashioned violence. That's what you need. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultra-violence. So he, he gets Two Face. He gets the the beats the mutant gang. Then like the, a bunch of the mutants are now like huge into Batman. They want to be like him. Mm. Uh, he inspires them. Then the Joker comes back uh, and again is is like given like a he goes on like a talk show. Um, you know, so there's these ways in which you know he's kind of taking shots at the political establishment yeah. at the the you know the police who are more concerned with. Batman's vigilante violence and with the gangs right. and then like the media culture uh, and there's these these you know bits where he's got like talking heads arguing with each other yeah. um, in this sort of like reactionary sort of fever dream of what sort yeah. of a squishy liberal relationship to vigilante violence would be um, and and then finally and one of the things that's really great is the final kind of person that Batman has to go up against is not an enemy, but it's it's Superman, right? Because Superman represents a totally different way of conducting oneself and, and, and behaving yourself. Not noirish, uh, yeah. bureaucratic in a way, right? Yeah. Sort of You always say yes to anyone with a badge or a flag is, is Batman's critique of Superman, whereas he's, you know, he's for the, the anarchic people yeah yeah the, the libertarian warrior the um yeah yeah right it's antisocial, right like the the guy who restores order yeah um to the city who brings order back to the city is the most profoundly antisocial character other than the joker you know they're yeah. they're twins in that sense he's uh, you know, the beast writhes within him at the thought of a woman, at the thought of a yeah. taming, domesticating influence. He has to go be antisocial, but he channels his antisocialness like a uh, ancient warrior might yeah. into fending off the barbarian hordes. Um, you know, look, let nothing I, I have said suggest that I didn't love this stuff very much as a kid. Um you know, a lot of his other stuff as well. And he really, you have to give him credit. I give him credit, I suppose. You could blame him if you wanted for innovating a style yeah. in comics that was super influential and that was better than um, a lot of the other horrible trends in comics uh, around that era and a little and a little later. The sort of noir comic, the hard-boiled comic 
produced a lot of good stories. He also went on to do some really bad stuff like Batman Y2K where mm-hmm. he gets shrunk. Did you read that? No. It's terrible. It sounds terrible. Martha goes to Washington. All bad stuff. But he, he wrote a tremendous amount. He's very prolific. Um, but his relationship to violence is the, I mean, the funny thing, right, is it's a comic book. Yeah. Thing. You know, he's a comic writer. It's ve- it, He thinks along the lines of a comic book character. Yeah. He seems to, you read that Occupy Wall Street thing and you realize, oh, this this is a speech bubble. Right. You know, and he is the Dark Knight in this <laughs> scenario. I think he's Rorschach is what I'm saying. Yeah. But, uh, but that's where he's at. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Rorschach in in in, in um, uh, Watchmen, in Watchmen, you know, is a is basically a Batman character, but taken seriously. Like, what would that look like in a real world? A psychopath, and it would look like a psychopath. Yes, yeah. uh, who's not, you know, who has a certain integrity, right? In a his, psychopath's integrity, in a, but it's a psychopath's integrity, you know, and yeah. is you know is not going to be corrupted by these corrupting institutions. But like, that's a problem. You know, and there's no, there's no notion aside from like people spontaneously rising up and, you know, attacking, you know, violent predatory street gangs. There's no sense in this of, of, of any kind of anything that we'd recognize as politics, right? And politics is just, you know, people trying to massage points in the media and it's just a game and. No, Batman has to rescue us from what politics has wrought. You know, politics is the squishy liberals, the corrupt elites, Mm -hmm. you know, the only decent – there's a couple of And and, and like the Reagan character, like the president is basically Ronald Reagan. He's, you know, corrupt too. Even Commissioner Gordon, right, right, who's fundamentally decent, is ineffectual. Right. You know, the the best Gordon can do is get out of the way for the the real agent of justice. Yeah. And so, I mean, I greatly enjoyed this when I was much younger and read it and – when I read it again, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're supposed to read it in your mid to late 30s. The other thing, and we probably should have led with this. But it's got a huge appeal to people. And I think yeah, it's got a huge yeah. appeal to people in their in their mid you know mid to late 30s as well. I don't, I don't, you think so? I think so, yeah. To read it or as a nostalgic thing? I think this relationship to violence. I mean, I think this relationship to violence uh, is, is so much a part of American culture. Well, yeah. look, the thing to say about the comic itself that we probably should have led with yeah. also is that the art is incredible. It's great. And so the story is good, but yeah. it's a comic, so it matters. And um, it's but the, like but the, beautiful. The, the, the idea that there is, there's, there's complex social dysfunction. Yeah. What could yeah. solve it? Violence. Like yeah. Americans love the idea that we can have violent solutions to complicated problems. And like yeah. – you know, violence is a pretty blunt tool. Listen, this is a particular yeah. kind of American violence too, right? It's the lone rebel, you know, it's this sort of like yeah. antisocial libertarian. Yeah. Um, you know, he's both anarchic. The, yeah. Anarchic, but he's the conscience and he's the anti-conscience. He's the hero yeah. and he's the anti-hero. But the paneling is really well done. It's great. I mean, it's amazing. The, yeah, the, the art is fantastic. The pen work is phenomenal. Um you know, it's just the the art is like really clean. The line, it's a great line. Yeah. You know, what year was this? Do you know? It's in the eighties, right? Yeah, it's in the eighties. And what's going to come after this is all that um, gross, uh, you know, like Todd McFarlane <laughs> stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, really, what was the other guy's name? Rob. Um, I don't know. Yeah. McFarlane's a spawn, Rob right? Liefeld, Rob, something like that. Anyways, all right, so. Yeah, violence 
bad, Arendt, violence, good, Miller? Violence is instrumental in, in, yes. and depends upon how you're using it, and you need to be very careful because the use of violence can create its own effects that overwhelm what you were originally trying to use it for. And that, I think, is, is fundamentally right. That's a much better... Violence solves everything in Miller, and it's fundamentally wrong. One other thing, hey, we've been, like, out meeting Manifesto fans um, out in the wild, and it's awesome. Thank we you. Thank like you. Thanks. Uh, uh, thanks for the, the, the fan from, uh, Ohio who reached out, uh, very much appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's really heartening to us that there, there are, there are people out there who are, are interested in this, this odd project. And, uh, uh, we're going to try and keep, uh, keep putting it out, keep putting things on, on, you know, Facebook and Twitter and, uh, you know, keep it going.